0: Professor Forsyth, in the second interview last week, we covered the period up to the end of your lectureship in Cambridge. In this interview, we'll complete your academic career and in a further conversation, cover your scholarly work. After 12 years as a lecturer, you were promoted to reader. This was in 2000 and lasted until 2005. Did your teaching or your administrative duties change?
1: No, they didn't significantly. I mean, perhaps some people might have thought that the word of a reader carried more weight than the word of a, a lecturer, but I was never aware of anything like that. Um, and I can't remember quite how the dates worked out, but it was at about that stage that Jack Beetson went away to the um, to, to be a full-time judge and I became director of the Centre for Public Law was director of the Centre for Public Law for about 10 years so that, that was one change that came about at about that, that sort of time um, I really rather liked the, the title reader um, when it's sad that it's all been replaced now with professorships um, but the, the, the idea of being a reader carries a connotation of of being quite a serious scholar but at the same time not distracted by all the administrative things that often distract professors so I think that's probably all that I can think of to say about being a reader.
0: Thank you. In addition, during this period you had two posts that hark back to your South African associations. From 2000 to 2002, you were manager of the African Studies Centre. I wonder if you could say something about that.
1: Um, Yes, under the the constitution of the African Studies Centre, there's scope for a, a nominee from the the law faculty to sit on its board of management, um, and I became the um, I became the law faculty's nominee, and served on the the Centre for African Studies, um, first as just an ordinary member of the committee, and then later as a, as chairman of the board of management, uh, selected by the other managers. Uh, and I quite enjoyed Centre for African Studies work because it gave me um, gave me insight into other parts of the university that I didn't otherwise see. It also gave me a finger in the pie of the Smuts Memorial Fund, which is quite well funded and does a lot of lot of good work. Uh, and I played my part in, in spending some of that money deciding who it should be spent on. Um, and ultimately, it's it was service. It, it went beyond pure scholarship. Uh, um, it was really service to the cause of Africa in working the centre for... For, for African studies. And I I saw saw it move from being right down in the Sidgwick uh, right, right right down in the new museum sites coming up onto Sidgwick site after spending some more some, some time in the building with the crocodile on it, the Eric Hill crocodile in, in the old museum, new new museum site, yes the centre of Cambridge. Um, and so I became part of the furniture at the African Studies Centre. I was rather, rather sorry when it all ended, but I retired and I thought the time had come for me to uh, to, to give way. We, we did some good things. Uh, the, the director at one stage was a, a chap called Atta Kwesun. Q-U-A-Y-S-O-N, and he raised, succeeded in raising quite a bit of money from North America. We had a series of research fellowships that came every year, four or five every year, uh, from, from Africa, from, from all parts of Africa, and it was a lot of work selecting who the successful candidates were going to be. And quite difficult to do at the distance that we had to do to had to communicate with people in in countries that didn't really have the things that we were taking for granted, such as email and the internet and easy communications interviewing by interviewing electronically and things of that kind. we couldn't we could but dream of that and now, we ended up. Effectively pointed people without interview. Um, it was good. It was good things, things to do. I never saw African studies, which was dominated by, by history and and anthropology, and the social sciences, rather than with law. Law made quite rare appearance in African studies. Um, But that kept my, gave me some understanding of what people were thinking about in other disciplines. But it is very, very different, very different law. Uh,
0: during this time you published 12 journal articles and two of these dealt with Hong Kong issues. One was with Professor Mark Elliott and two were on South Africa. That's seventeen percent, and the centre of gravity in your research, in as much as it could be said to be reflected in your publications, seems to have shifted significantly from your time as a lecturer, where thirty-seven percent of your articles were on South Africa. Was this a real realignment of interests?
1: I'm afraid I must disappoint you. I, I just do what comes next. I don't have a great plan. And my, my articles were were determined by by what interested me, what I came across. And the the Hong Kong articles, um, which were both on legitimate expectations, if I remember correctly, legitimate expectations have always been quite a thing of mine since. Um, I first wrote about it in 1988, I think. Um, And what happened is that Hong Kong, China had resumed sovereignty over Hong Kong. And these complicated cases arose out of who was entitled to enter Hong Kong from, from the mainland. And various promises had been made and the question was whether those promises um granted a legitimate expectation to the uh, to the individual to whom the promise had been made that had to be taken into account in deciding whether they were allowed to come into Hong kong and these and the various decisions were taken that effectively determined that the legitimate expectations were valueless, that they didn't benefit the individuals at all. And that, um, that was, of course, challenged in the Hong Kong courts, and they won in the Hong Kong courts. And then the Hong Kong government, with the connivance of the Chinese government, referred the matter to the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, um, which was a non-judicial body that wasn't as like an appeal from a court. It was a non-judicial body. It was much more like a legislative body. And it overturned the decision of the Hong Kong courts. So the legitimate expectations were at naught. And of course, it's the first sign of the difficulties over the rule of law, which one sees in Hong Kong now. Um, and I wrote one article with Rebecca Williams, one article with Mark Mark Elliot on those those two cases. Now, you never know what I might have written about if politics in Hong Kong hadn't intervened and so I became involved in in writing about these things in Hong Kong. Um, So no, there was no specific decision on my part to... um, I think there there was a sort of slight specific decision on my part to concentrate less on South Africa. Um, In part, the South African constitutional scene after the release of Nelson Mandela had been completely transformed, and I found myself from being completely at home in South African constitutional matters in fact not being completely at home in the in the the new new constitution um, which of course i I, I well welcomed at the new constitution and i it did my bit to edge it along, um, but there's an absolute ap- alphabet soup of various bodies doing different types of things that you had to, to devote a lot of time to, if you were to only get to any, uh, if, if you were to get on top of it, and um, I find myself sometimes being at sea, and that, that's not a state of mind that one should have if you're purporting to write authoritatively on on these subjects, um, but I still did a, a fair bit on, on South Africa. I, I gave evidence to the Truth and Reconciliation Co- Commission. Um, it's the one thing that, that that springs to mind, and of course I always I continue to write about South African um, conflict of laws. Um, but I did sort of drop out to a certain degree of uh, South African public law.
0: Thank you, and uh, I look forward to looking at your book on conflict of laws in in our next conversation. Right. Um, In 2005, you were made professor of public law and, and private international law and you held the chair for eleven years. Yes. Did your faculty duties change?
1: Now again I don't I found myself doing slightly more serious and senior administrative jobs I was on the um on the Board of Graduate Studies for example but most of my administrative work on at this stage is is not connected with the faculty as much as with the University um, I, I was for example proctor once as a lecturer and once as a reader I think as a proctor twice um, and I uh, was on the Board of Graduate Studies, as I've mentioned, and I served on the Board of Scrutiny, and I was Chairman of the Board of Scrutiny. And I'm, I was, of course, university advocate. For many years, I was university advocate. Um, and these were administrative tasks that I really Relished in many ways, um, though not in the faculty. I was on the faculty board, in the Center for Public Law, and so forth and so on. But I didn't take a leading role in the administrative work of the faculty. And also, I always had my other interests. I was. This was at the stage that I came off the police authority. Um, And I started looking around uh, for something else to do and ended up becoming a recorder. Uh, So that's how I I kept myself busy, that that in writing, rather than taking on more. Oh, I was chairman of examiners, of course. I was chairman of Part 1A. And um, for one time, only chairman of... The LLM examiners. I think I uh, I think I did my bit, but I had lots of other things on the go as well at the same time.
0: Because uh, you also during these eleven years produced fifteen journal articles, and I wonder if you could sum up for our listeners and our readers what your main focus of research during this time was.
1: Have you got the articles there in front of you I don't oh I just have to rely on my memory there <laughs> um, I think it would have seemed that i became I became much more involved in in u k public law and um I carried forward the work that I'd already started while I was a lecturer Mm. on the foundations of judicial review and on the um, questions of nullity and and so forth. Um, But I think the articles would reveal or raising a bit of it over the tendency to The two articles on Hong Kong, um, the articles tended to reflect my broadening interest in comparative public law, in that I um, was less interested in pure UK public law and more interested in seeing how things worked out in other parts of the world. Hong Kong has already been mentioned, but India, I became fascinated by Indian public law. Uh, but As with South African public law, when I said it, I didn't feel I could really say very much about it, because I knew so little about it. In fact, it was the, the same with India, I was absolutely fascinated by India. and. Uh, was very very hesitant about expressing an opinion in, on, Indian, on Indian law but I went to, to India many times and um, and lectured in India to many many venues and, and so forth um, this was something I was introduced about to by Paul Wade um, And Bill Wade had a friend, an Indian friend, who'd he'd known from the 1950s. And they played tennis together. While Bull was working on his, well, it doesn't matter what they were doing, they were both living, living in Cambridge and played tennis together and, and got on relatively well. Mm-hmm. And... Mr. Ramakrishna, that was his name, came to believe that what India needed more than anything else was better administrative law. And Ramakrishna accepted this analysis of, he came to believe that what India needed was more administrative law, more thoughtful administrative law. And to this end, he made it his practice to invite British academics to come out to India and to lecture in India on administrative law at the Madras High Court and um, he invited me several occasions and I always took it up and uh, I had a wonderful time in in India and at the in the Madras High Court of course and the at uh, local universities and at universities in Bangalore and so forth, um, which, which I absolutely relished and was fascinated by. Um, and I, I saw enough to be... I, I saw fascinating things for... For example, I was I was taken to the to the, the judicial review court that they have in in Madras, um, and saw saw the counsel arguing their cases, and using in fact a copy of Wade and Forsyth in Administrative Law, standing open on the on the judge's desk, and it was. Uh, a fascinating experience Uh, often often when when your book is cited uh, whether in India or elsewhere the author often feels they've just missed the point the person who's citing the book has just missed the point It's slightly different from but but I saw this happening in in India and um, and it was pleasant to see it even if I thought they didn't get it quite right, but it's, it's, it's part of the, the worldwide influence of that book, yeah.
0: Sounds immensely gratifying. Yes. Professor Forsyth, in 2016, after 11 years in the chair, you were honoured with the inaugural appointment to the Sir David Williams chair. And I noticed that this was funded by a donation from Sir David Lee, who mm-hmm. was then a Hong Kong financier and banker yeah. with strong ties to the University of Hong Kong, with which you are closely involved. And I wondered whether you know him. Uh, I believe he studied economics at Selwyn College. And if you could tell us about the circumstances of your appointment.
1: Well, I'll tell you about Sir David Lee, um, whom I know very well. I first knew him through his son, who was a law student at, at Robinson College. And I I admitted him and taught him several subjects and so forth. So when I was going to Hong Kong on other business. Um, I it was quite natural that I should go and see his parents. And then uh, and he's, he's, you know there were two young Lee boys, one was a Trinity and one was a province and the the, the the Lee boys were, were keen that I should meet their parents and so, so I And um, we hit it off and David and Penny Lee became a fixture on my subsequent visits to Hong Kong. Um, And he studied law as well as economics at Selwyn. And uh, had a great interest in the government of Hong Kong served on the executive committee in the Litchko and so forth and, and and so on so he's a he's quite he's a considerable figure um in in, in hong kong terms he's, he's the, the family bank is the bank of east asia and it's a substantial bank in hong kong and in southern china and southeast asia um and uh So David came to believe that that I was an administrative lawyer that should have more to do with Hong Kong, and he, he was also a very good friend of David Williams, and he conceived uh, he conceived the idea that there should be a chair named for David Williams. And that I should be the first holder of it, and this this suggestion, which I obviously didn't object to, uh, I was somewhat sceptical about whether it could come to fruition, um, because I was getting close to retirement and. The, might not be considered fit to hold it for any length of time. Um, And, of course, it's in breach of all the principles of free and open competition and so forth and so on that should be dedicated to me. But this proposal was put put forward by David Lee, which, as you'll be aware, is a great philanthropist and has funded... Good projects, without number, in the University of of Cambridge, included in the in the law faculty um, and several schol- uh, colleges too. Um, and David Lee would propose this, and wiser heads would say no. We didn't want to proceed with it, or we couldn't see it working, or whatever. Um, in the end he gave the university uh, the the offer of the the, the endowed chair the fully endowed chair Um, but it would have to have have me as as the first uh, first holder so the university voted for me be the first holder, and I became the first holder, but only, f- but not for very long. Before I had, I retired, and it was that. But the great thing is that the chair is tied to Robinson College, um, and that means. And I think it should become one of the most prestigious chairs of public law in the UK. And that means that Robinson College will have one of the leading public lawyers in the country amongst its fellowship in perpetuity, which I think is, is something that is reason to be very grateful to Sir David Lee.
0: That is immensely interesting. I had wondered about that, Um, so for example Professor Alison Young who is the next incumbent in the chair, she needed to be at Robinson, she could not have been, say, a fellow at another college if she, to be in the chair.
1: Uh, That's, that is, that is true. The way the way it's set up, it's designed to make it very difficult for um, a person to become the David Williams Chair, not be a f- f- professorial fellow of Robinson. I think there's a little bit of ripple warm if the individual is, is a member of of another college and applies for the Sir David Williams Chair. And then there may be difficulty, and they may have to. The chair may go to that another college until it has to be refilled. Right. Um, but yes, but that's the reason why Alison Young is, is the second holder. You in Robinson? Mm. Um, what I should also say. David Yates, warden of Robinson, or the then warden of Robinson is also there um, was also a moving spirit behind the, behind the chair and would press press for it when be rebuffed, and then David would David Yates would press for it and be rebuffed, and David Lee would come forward and press for it and so forth and so on. Um, at the grand dinner we had to to launch the chair. I made a speech in which I, I said this is a tale of three Davids, Sir David Williams, David Lee and David Yates, brought the chair into existence.
0: That is fascinating. That brings us to your some of your other extramural academic appointments. Perhaps we can draw together your activities in various other legal jurisdictions, South Africa, Hong Kong and Sri Lanka. Over the years you've retained strong connections with legal developments in South and Southern Africa. In 2004, was a new leader, you became a recorder on the South African Eastern Circuit.
1: Uh, The the, the CV I sent you must have been misleading on that point. I wanted to to mention it. It's a I was indeed and not pointed as a recorder on the southeastern circuit of the of England, not of South Africa. Oh, of England. Yes. Right.
0: Thank you. Right.
1: I've, I've never been a judge in South Africa. I wondered about that. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I, I was a judge in I was a judge in England. As I. Right. I was yeah. I was thrown off the police authority. Yes. As I think I explained last time. Yes. Um, and I always wanted to have something else on the go. And, uh, and nice. I conceived of the idea of seeing whether like I could become a recorder. Um, and I threw my hat in the ring. Went down and was interviewed by a panel of of civil servants and magistrates and judges. And I really, in some ways I was most unqualified to be a recorder, because most recorders have done 20 years in the criminal courts and uh, are completely familiar with the operation of the criminal courts. Uh, And I wasn't, but I'd always been interested in criminal law. And I felt sure that my knowledge of the procedure of administrative law would probably stand me in good stead. I'd be unlikely to to do anything fundamentally unfair on the bench, I I hoped. Um, And anyway, I I was duly appointed a recorder trying serious criminal cases because I uh, never tire of saying never sex or death. I wasn't senior enough to, to do um, sex or death. So I didn't do sex or death. Um, but uh, anything else. Uh, and I enjoyed I enjoyed much of it. Uh I was pretty, uh, as, I, as I say, I struggled at the beginning because I knew nothing. Um, but I don't think I did any fundamental injustice. And what I did find though, one would answer it as a recorder for a for a week, sometimes two weeks, um, and I found after a week in the criminal courts I was very pleased to to come back into the university or, uh, where things are, are much more ordered. People don't regularly lie all the time to you. Uh, And so it, it it sort of the it all became too much for me. In the end, I was sort of quite pleased to give up being a recorder. Um, so if I if I'd done it earlier. I'd become a recorder earlier and of course I might not have succeeded in might not have been appointed But if I'd become a recorder earlier I might then have been able to um, go to the High Court bench where people like Jack Beetson did and so forth but I was just too close to retirement by the stage I, I could have gone to the High Court bench and I I did I was. I did sit as a deputy high court judge trying administrative law cases for I think three years in total, I mean not for the whole year, but for four weeks taken out of a three year period. And uh, I enjoyed that much more but before I could get really stuck into work as a deputy, I then had to to retire through ill health. Uh, That was unfortunate. But I enjoyed sitting on the, enjoyed sitting in judicial review cases, put the sort of considerable theoretical knowledge that I had of judicial review into practical application.
0: So returning to our your connections with South and Southern Africa, mm-hmm. specifically your involvement in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, mm-hmm. you gave evidence to the Commission on Judiciary, and this commission's work has been both lauded as uncovering the truth and also criticized as being too Christian and focusing on forgiving. Overall, What
1: are your views on its achievements? I'd give it sort of a middling second-class mark, I think. Its task was incredibly difficult, so in in some ways it was was bound not to fail. Well, it did succeed in that it, it did encourage some people to come forward and to admit what they had done. And they then got immunity from prosecution. And that brought these terrible deeds out into the open and one knew that was and what had happened. And at its best reconciled the, the victims with the perpetrators. Um, and that I think was a noble purpose and and it was in part successful. My own involvement came about because the um, because I think the Judiciary committee was was in danger of having the wool pulled over its eyes in that the South African judges were invited to come and give evidence to the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, and they refused to turn up. Instead, they said to have sent a written document. And the written document was, I think, no good at all because it simply parroted the defence that the South African judges had made all through the apartheid years that there was nothing they could do about ameliorating the condition of the victims of apartheid or anything of that, that sort. There's nothing they could do. They were just obeying the law, the law that they'd sworn to uphold. And they put forward this, this tale to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to say that nothing, that they could have done nothing, that everything had been specified clearly in the law and they had no choice but to apply it. Now, I felt that sort of quite personally because my thesis has just been published and the whole point of my thesis was to show that in fact the judges did have a choice and on the legal sources and the authorities in front of them there were things that they could have done not as much as some people, like David Eisenhaus, would have liked them to have done, um, but they certainly weren't these uh, weren't completely impotent in the way that their evidence suggested. And so, I, in my in my evidence, which I, I gave unsolicited, uh, I, I, I set out the reasons why. I thought this was an inadequate account of what had actually happened in the past. But there is another sort of point lurking in the undergrowth there, is I think there's quite a reasonable case to be made for the judges not turning up in person to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think they should have offered a better defence or should have said, no, we see the error of our ways. Um and we recognised that we, we were in part tainted with the charge that we collaborated with apartheid. I think that's what they should have done, but I think that they should have done it in writing to the to the commission rather than turning up in, in person, because the, the proceedings, I wasn't present, but the proceedings, as I understand it, were bad enough already if he brought the judges out, dragged them before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he would have split the judiciary into those who were for, those who were against. Um, And he would have dragged out the, the, the wrongdoers or the perceived wrongdoers and subjected them to ignominious criticism in front of the public in the commission. And this would have much weakened the the judiciary because I think in fact, (coughs) and this has been recognized by uh, by the South African courts themselves, the Constitutional Court and elsewhere, that there was merit in preserving a formally independent judiciary in South Africa, which was what happened it was was never the case that politicians would order judges how to decide cases. Of course, you might say to that very often, they didn't have to do that because the judges knew which way to decide anyway. But um, but the the judges were formally independent. Um, And I think that's in the, in the tortured political circumstances of South Africa, and without suggesting for one moment there wasn't a tremendous amount wrong with every part of the South African legal system, that was an achievement that is worth noting. Um, and I think David Eisenhower came around to agree with me in the end, that nothing was gained by, would have been gained if the judges had turned out to to have brickbacks thrown at them before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission.
0: Thank you very much. In addition to the assistance you gave to Botswana and Malawi, which we've already mentioned, you were also asked to advise other Commonwealth governments in constitutional matters. And I wonder if you could say something about your work for the Minister of Justice and Constitutional Development of Sri Lanka which, as we speak, is in a situation of political turmoil. Yes.
1: Well, this started again through the good offices of Bill Wade that he was approached by the Sri Lankan government and got me as his junior. And what we were trying to do was to find a way in which the this was before the while the the war with the Tamils in the North was raging with them and what, what the Sri Lankan government wanted was to give substantial autonomy to the rebellious North and Eastern parts of Sri Lanka. that would have been sufficient to bring peace to that part of Sri Lanka. But is often the case with constitutional problems, is a problem. And the problem is that the legislature was in the hands of the opposition who determined not to cooperate in this, this scheme. So a government wanting to do good was prevented from doing so by the fact that, in its wisdom, the Lankan people had voted for one party. i I might, might be wrong on some of the details of the Shudankin constitution at this stage. Um, the, in its wisdom, at any rate, you'd ended up with a situation where there was effectively deadlock with one party controlling the legislature and the other party controlling the executive. And what we were trying to do was to devise ways in which the executive could bring about substantial autonomy in the the provinces without having to legislate on the subject. And we, we suggested that and they took our suggestion and then the tides of politics swept it all away and it didn't happen. Um, but that, that introduced me to quite a few other Sri Lankan Affairs, in that Bill Wade then dropped out of the picture and left me to advise the Sri Lankans and once more I gave quite a lot of advice on how you could organise the government to effectively give effectively to give substantial autonomy to the disaffected provinces and none of my ideas were implemented in this case either but I, I gave the advice now what, is, what happened in, in Sri Lanka is, seems to me to be um, at the Rajapaska regime the real problem is corruption more than anything else. There were once once peace had been achieved in the dispute with the with the north and the east. It was a wonderful opportunity for Sri Lanka, but it looks as if through corruption they've rather squandered it. They now face huge economic problems. It's very sad.
0: Returning to Hong Kong, you were the Ching Yutong visiting professor in law from 2017 to 19. Yes. And you also advised the Hong Kong government on questions of constitutional and administrative law. And I wondered whether, in the last year or so, was the constitutional settlement that the UK and the Chinese government struck in 1997, being overturned, and the uh, direct government from Beijing via the new security law, how you saw the new legal order, and proposed democratic processes, particularly judicial review, surviving under the new dispensation.
1: Well, that's a very difficult question to which I, I really feel I don't know the answer. Um, I I've been involved with the Department of Justice in Hong Kong for more than 20 years since I first began to advise them and then I have lectured to them on the rule of law and judicial review, time and time again. Um, they seemed to like what I have to say. And, the, and so they kept on inviting me back. And then I would advise them, and I advised in case after case in judicial review after judicial review application to judicial review application, so I, I know I know the Department of Justice in Hong Kong very well, and many of the people who work in it. And I'm going to be a bit cautious about saying anything about anybody because. Um, one doesn't know what comeback there may be to them. Uh, But it's certainly the case that Hong Kong people as a whole are committed to democracy and the Department of Justice and many people in the Hong Kong government would be similarly committed to to democracy and that has now been something that has to be confessed in secret rather than rather than otherwise and I think it's absolutely absolutely tragic and it's to do with lack of compromise on oh, the government of Hong Kong was always going to be influenced by the fact that it has this huge neighbor just lurking over its shoulder the whole time and much of the, the the fresh water in Hong Kong and the electricity supply and much of the food all of this comes from the mainland China, and so Hong Kong even for its years under the British is still dependent upon the Chinese government for these, um, for its success. And there was just insufficient compromise by the Hong Kong Democrats who wanted things such as independence and so forth, which were just never going to happen. And the and Chinese government which didn't have the good sense to realize that it had a a pearl of great price in Hong Kong that it could easily destroy and it just had to accept that things were done differently in Hong Kong government should be criticized what happens now I don't know
0: All, so the other so-called uh, Special Administrative Region was or is Macau. And I wondered whether you ever involved yourself with the legal framework of this enclave.
1: No. I, I do know that it is very similar to the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region basic law. Um, but I've I never worked directly with it. Um, But the people of Macau, whether it's because they were so few of them or whether it was because they were less democratically ruled by the Portuguese, what it is, there's there's very little of the same kind of pro-democracy movement in Macau that there is in Hong Kong. we'll have to see what happens I, mean, I would I would very much like to go to Hong Kong see what is going I haven't been to Hong Kong for more than two years what with the pandemic and so forth um, so I don't really know what what it's like on the ground in Hong Kong I don't think I would be arrested when, I, <coughs> as soon as I set foot on the on the ground but, consider that
0: That brings us to your retirement you've been retired for five years and I wonder if you can say how you've continued your legal research and other hobbies now that you have more leisure time to pursue them
1: Well I feel that I've being, in some ways, I've been very fortunate, but in other ways i'm I'm unfortunate in that I as soon as I retired, I started getting ill and so i having sort of having some golden years doing what I wanted to in retirement. I now think I won't have that. Um and I've done some things. I've with the assistance of others I've brought to conclusion the twelfth edition of Waiting for Southern Administrative Law. That will be appearing in six months' time or so. Um Some of my visiting professorship work at Hong Kong was done while I was technically retired from from Cambridge. But mostly I found myself being far too busy. Things that I have to do and not, which is a great pity. Um, anyway
0: Professor Forsyth, looking back on this very eventful and successful career could you say which areas of activity have given you the most satisfaction?
1: When I came to Cambridge I was Delighted by what I discovered. I mean, of course, one had known that Cambridge was a very good university and so forth and so on. But I was delighted to discover that Cambridge was a self-governing community of scholars. And I was naturally sympathetic to the democratic nature of Cambridge's government. In mean, particularly since I'd had some experience of even the liberal universities in South Africa, Come nowhere near Cambridge in terms of academic autonomy and self government and so forth. Um, so, that I have been delighted by, and therefore I've got most pleasure out of the part that I've played in that uh, government of Cambridge. And so my, my work as a proctor, as a university advocate on the board of scrutiny, these have all seemed to me to be uh, continuing with what makes Cambridge different from other universities. Uh, that would be what I think gave me the greatest pleasure. Um, then. I must be frank and say I've got got pleasure out of the areas where I've been influential. I don't, I don't know whether I'm running ahead to talk about private international law, but it, my work in that area has been quite influential, and I take pleasure in that. Particularly since I remember what it was like in the old days before the subject had been invented, practically. And I and Ellison Kahn were the only people in South Africa who were serious about conflict of laws. Um, and how that's now been transformed, I not in that. And I think I have. Similar pleasure in the influence that I've had, although it's not nearly as great on defending orthodox administrative law in the, in the UK. I, the fact that we have a sovereign parliament has to mean something for our, our, our administrative law. And we can't really have a situation where talking about the theoretical underlines and justification for judicial review has nothing to say how judicial review cases are actually decided. To the extent that I've reminded people that the orthodox principles of judicial review are there for a reason, they can't just be discarded because it seems inconvenient. And I think that's something I'll take pleasure in too.
0: Thank you very much, Professor Forsyth. All that remains for me is to reiterate my Uh, gratitude for such a fascinating, interesting, and thoughtful account. I'm very grateful and looking forward to resuming our conversation when we can talk about your scholarly work. Thank you.
1: Right. Thank you so
0: much.